two Barclays analysts. One hot topic, all sides explored. This is The Flip Side. The Flip Side is a podcast series featuring lively debate between two Barclays research analysts, taking opposing viewpoints on timely topics of importance to economies and businesses around the globe. Welcome to The Flip Side. I'm Jeff Melly, the head of research at Barclays. I'm joined today by Brad Rogoff, the global head of FIC Research, who's here to talk about private credit. Thanks for joining me, Brad. Thanks for having me, Jeff. Very excited to talk about what has become the hottest two words in my market, besides, I guess, of course, Federal Reserve. Well, we've done plenty of flip side episodes concerning the Fed, but this is the first time we're going to talk about private credit. Now, private credit consists of non-bank lending where the debt is not public. So it's not publicly traded, and the companies that borrow the money are not required to make public disclosures. It's basically the private analog of the better known public credit markets, which include things like corporate bonds and institutional loans. It's really just an alternative version of the institutional loan market, in my opinion. So in the loan market, banks originate loans to companies, sell them to a broad base of large asset managers who own loans on behalf of their investors. On the private credit market, non-bank lenders go directly to the companies that are looking to borrow money. In fact, Another term that, well, maybe it's not exactly the same, is often used synonymously as direct lending. Well, Brad, you already alluded to how popular this topic is with credit investors. And in my experience, it seems like almost any conversation with a large investor in the credit market turns to private credit at some point. Everyone is getting involved. And maybe more quantitatively, the market does appear to be growing very rapidly. It has. Everyone's doing it. We estimate the size of the market is currently $1.2 trillion, which is roughly the size of the leveraged loan market and approaching the high yield bond market. I think it's growing for a good reason. Private credit offers both investors and issuers benefits vis-a-vis the public credit market. Sure, there are trade-offs and it's not for everyone, but in the end, both sides are happy in most cases thus far. And I think the growth has provided a good alternative. Well, Brad, I'm actually much more skeptical of private credit. I think the growth is really the consequence of some well-intended regulatory initiatives that have resulted in a generic trend of more risk moving out of the public sphere. And I think that will pose its own risks when this cycle eventually turns. Yeah, I don't know if that's skeptical or, or dire, Jeff, but as I mentioned already, this is not for everyone. But let me start on a more optimistic take. First, some history. In the aftermath of the global financial crisis, small and medium-sized companies needed financing. The banks they had previously relied on were under significant strain and were reluctant to extend credit. So these companies went to other lenders. Initially, those were BDCs or business development corporations. And these investment vehicles raised money from investors and led directly to these smaller companies. Now, these BDCs have existed really since the 1980s, but the issuance definitely picked up in the years following the global financial crisis. That's where the trend started for private credit, but it has a lot of momentum, and now there are more investors involved, like insurance companies and others, also a variety of new investment vehicles. I would say at this point, BDCs are maybe 20% of this market. So they matter, but you're right, they have been eclipsed. The investor base grew rapidly, and quickly this became an important channel of financing for these companies. So given how quickly it's grown, and with such broad interest, there must be something attractive about the asset class. What's interesting, though, is that for the market to grow this rapidly, it had to be appealing to not just investors, but issuers as well. See, Brad, that sounds hard to believe. How can both investors and issuers prefer this to public credit? All right. 
to me or anyone who's listened to a flip side knows that there's no way we're going to get you to believe in a free lunch. But in nascent markets, there can be arbitrage opportunities. So let's start with the investors, where I think the argument's a little bit easier. First of all, private credit does not trade actively, and so it doesn't get marked to market, i.e. it has much lower volatility. It's a nice feature in environments like we are currently experiencing. Well, Brad, your own research has indicated that the default rates in private credit are quite similar to the default rates in public credit. So this lack of volatility is really more a question of optics than anything real about the value of the assets. When markets sell off, these investments drop in value in a, in a real sense, whether or not there's a price that you could reference to show that they got marked down. But we do know that sometimes optics matter, Jeff. More importantly, investors get greater yields than they would from public credit. The yield increase, it's difficult to estimate precisely because of differences in the most common structures between the markets, but we think the additional yield was in excess of 200 basis points for an extended period of time, and it's now closer to 100 basis points higher on a like-for-like -like basis. In the environment we've been in for the past decade, that extra yield definitely matters to investors. Now, of course, investors are sacrificing liquidity in order to earn this extra yield. Private credit doesn't trade, so it's not like public markets where there's pricing and trading happening all the time. So it is less liquid, but I get it. At some point, there's a trade-off between liquidity and yield. And depending on the extra yield, that trade-off can make sense, particularly for part of a fixed income portfolio. But just to be clear, if private credit generates better returns for investors, then by definition, it must be more expensive for issuers. That's a zero-sum game. Only if you consider coupon as the entire price for issuers. When people ask me the lessons from the global financial crisis, I often say that private equity learned that when they are buying a company, the structure of their financing is as important as the company they bought. Private credit is used primarily to finance private equity or sponsor-owned companies. Into the last few years, most of the issuers in this market were smaller companies that don't have immediate or perhaps any access to public credit. Maybe they gain access, but it's costly in terms of management time, investor education, et cetera. The private market offers an alternative that requires a relatively small number of lenders and thus gives greater certainty and speed of execution, both of which are valuable to issuers. As I mentioned, bank financing becomes more scarce around the global financial crisis and private credit fills that gap. Look, I understand that issuing debt is more difficult for a small company that only rarely needs to come to the market for financing than is the case for, say, a huge public company that issues corporate bonds all the time. Uh, and of course, markets are very volatile right now. So it resonates that speed and certainty matter. But a lot of the growth in private credit occurred during the period of very low volatility and very easy financing conditions that preceded this current bout of volatility we're experiencing. I don't really get how the certainty and speed arguments made sense then. I think you're undervaluing the overall costs associated with issuing debt for a smaller company. Certainty and speed for an issuer is basically a liquidity premium in reverse. You pay the extra premium, but lock in financing at a set price when you need the money. Well, Brad, I think there's more to the story here. So you've highlighted the barriers faced by smaller companies when accessing the public credit market, which causes them to turn to the private market. But isn't it the case that we've seen larger and larger companies accessing the private credit market? That is definitely true and actually a, a big reason why we're talking about it right now. The maximum size available to issuers has grown along with the investor base, and some larger companies have raised money through private credit. 
we've seen some deals in in the three billion dollars of debt range recently and i can see where you're going with this it's the case that those sizes are more typical of institutional loans and so you shouldn't have the same barriers that i just mentioned i think those deals are actually what's driving the premium to lower levels as i mentioned earlier well you know i think the missing ingredient that we haven't touched on yet is leverage remember that in 2016 the u.s federal reserve began to emphasize their leveraged lending guidelines that were intended to stop banks from originating loans to companies where the leverage of the company was too high. And we define a company's leverage as the ratio of its debt outstanding to its profits or EBITDA. The guidelines effectively capped that ratio at six times. That cap was meant to apply regardless of whether the bank held on to the loan or sold it to its investors. I know those guidelines well, Jeff. I also remember that the GAO ruled that the Fed did not follow the correct rulemaking process when issuing them so they could not enforce them as a rule. Yeah, that's true, but they are still used as a guideline. And I think it's clear that banks are still reluctant to bring deals to market that significantly exceed that leverage threshold. But there's no such restriction in the private credit market because banks aren't involved. And in fact, what we've seen is that the percentage of deals with high leverage, even over seven times or eight times, has been growing. I actually think that the ability to use such high leverage is a big part of the draw for issuers, particularly the larger ones. Maybe this was at one point in time a lifeline of sorts for smaller companies, but I think the use case has quickly morphed. I agree. Empirically, leverage has been growing. It's easier to do highly leveraged deals through a non-bank channel. But I have two caveats that, once again, make the point that we cannot measure trade-offs through one statistic. So first, whereas Covenant Light is the norm for broadly syndicated loans, private credit typically has a better covenant package. So covenants give investors rights to force a renegotiation if the company fails to meet certain financial targets. When those do exist, investors are better protected, even if leverage is slightly higher. Second, I think about leverage just like liquidity. There's a fair price for more leverage, and investors are the ultimate judge of whether they are getting a good deal. Well, I agree on the covenant point. Uh, to be fair, though, we had started to see some slippage in the covenant packages and private credit, although precise data is pretty hard to come by in that market. Um, I suspect that pushing the limits on the covenant package is a goal for the sponsors that own these companies, uh, particularly if they agree with your comment that financial structure is as important as the asset that they're purchasing. All right. Maybe there's a bit of hyperbole there, and I, I don't think they'll, they'll tell you they necessarily agree with it, but I stand by the point. If I had to guess some of the covenant slippage will reverse with the recent surge in volatility. Still, sponsors would argue that despite the presence of covenants, it's worth paying a premium since negotiating with fewer lenders makes getting a deal done much easier. How much easier is open to debate. I see public secured loans getting made even in stress situations where covenants do not come into play. Once again, a lot of this is based on a market that had low volatility. Okay, but I would disagree with you on the leverage issue. It is true that from the perspective of an individual investor or an individual company, there's a fair price for increased leverage. But the Fed did not try to limit leverage to protect investors. They were trying to do that to protect the economy. When too much leverage is widely used, you can end up with a large set of companies that all run into trouble at the same time, like if the economy experiences a recession. Companies that are more levered will likely have to reduce employment by more, reduce investment by more, have less ability to respond to challenging economic conditions, and more likely to sort of do economic harm. 
This can exacerbate a downturn. And in particular, I think what worries the Fed is it could do more damage to the labor market. So that's an interesting interpretation. The guidelines were enforced as part of the Fed's macroprudential regulations. And as you mentioned, the guidelines applied even if banks sold the loans. So clearly, there were worries about the overall use of leverage rather than specifically about what was sitting on bank balance sheets. But this was also coming out of a credit crisis and maybe the more general societal costs associated with leverage, even during a downturn, aren't typically that high. Well, that's fair. And I admit I don't really know how to size the social costs of widespread use of high leverage. But I think we can agree that the benefits of high leverage are all private. I do agree with that statement, but I also think the Fed is trying to have its cake and eat it too. Interest rates are only just started to rise despite the economic recovery post-COVID being in full swing and inflation reaching 8%. Is it really all that hard to imagine why investors were forced to look to alternative investments to generate yield? Well, it's not. I agree with that, Brad. And I think reach for yield definitely has contributed to the demand for private credit. But while we're on the subject of higher rates, how worried about you about the effect of the hiking cycle on these borrowers? Private credit is really in the form of loans. They're all floating rate. That means as the Fed starts hiking interest rates, the interest payments that these companies owe are going to go up. I, I am concerned. And as a credit guy by background, I love to look at free cash flow. Even at seven to eight times leverage, these companies generated cash to pay down debt because rates were so low. But clearly, higher interest bills are going to start eating into free cash flow. But remember, public loans are floating rate too. Yeah, they are. But those borrowers are less levered. And more broadly, if I'm right that the ability to utilize more leverage is a major draw, the growth of private credit also shows, I think, the downside of trying to use banking regulation to affect the broader financial system. What we're seeing here is that the activities have just migrated away from the banks and therefore away from the regulation and here, in this case, into the private market where the regulators have very little ability to affect the outcomes. It's actually a broader point than just banks that you're making, Jeff. So look at the recent SEC proposal to require climate-related disclosures from public companies. Obviously, private companies are exempt. In general, the burden on public companies has been one reason for the growth of private assets, equity and credit, and the decline in public investments. Reach for yield might be temporary, and as you mentioned, the Fed is now raising rates, but the costs of being public are only going up. So I don't think we will see the growth of private credit reverse anytime soon. Even if that were the case, remember approximately two-thirds of the broadly syndicated leveraged loan markets private, and so is one-third of high-yield bond issuers. When the costs go up, all of these options look more attractive. Well, Brad, we're going to have to see how this plays out over the next couple of quarters, particularly now, like you say, that interest rates are starting to rise. Clients of Barclays interested in reading more about private credit can see Brad's recent piece, Private Credit, Attempting to Redefine Risk Reward, available on Barclays Live. That's all for now from this Barclays podcast. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you next time on the flip side. For more insights on this topic, clients can log into Barclays Live or find out more at barclays.com/cib.